The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on a special, supersized Squawk Pod. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke. He oversaw the financial crisis of 2008, and now he's weighing in on the Fed's current fight against inflation. Why did they delay their response? I think, in retrospect, yes, it was a mistake, and I think they agree it was a mistake. Bernanke on Bitcoin, wealth taxes, and using history to see the big economic picture. In fact, the underlying economy, as we recover from the pandemic, is quite strong. It's Monday, May 16th, 2022. This jam-packed edition of Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back by in three, two, one, cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We're live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Brian Sullivan. Joe is off today. And Brian, welcome. Good to see you. Great to be here. Good to have you. Nice to see you. All right. Hello. Big day, too. It is. It is. A lot going on. And the Bernanke interview, I was just telling Andrew, I read through some of the beginning parts of it. This is not something you want to miss. There are some pretty substantial, substantial things that he has to say and interesting things. So you definitely want to stick around for this. Well, thank you for that. It's an, he's, he, he takes on all questions and provides very clear answers about what he thinks is going on. Very thoughtful stuff, but some um, maybe some more pointed comments than you might anticipate to. So you definitely have to stick around for this. Today's main feature on the podcast, this extended interview with former chair of the Federal Reserve, Ben Bernanke. To set the scene, Andrew Ross Sorkin stopped by Bernanke's home in the Washington, D.C. area, and they chatted about the economy. Bernanke's new book is out tomorrow. It's called 21st Century Monetary Policy, The Federal Reserve from the Great Inflation to COVID-19. In the book and in this interview, Bernanke goes far beyond commenting on inflation and recession. He weighs in on taxes for the wealthy, on Bitcoin as a store of value, and even on climate-friendly investments as the price of oil around the world remains elevated. Ben Bernanke ran America's central bank from 2006 to 2014. He oversaw the response to the financial crisis of 2008 and the Great Recession that followed. He also monitored the U.S. economy through two different presidential administrations. So, as American consumers manage rising prices at virtually every checkout counter, and as the markets go haywire, like they did last week, some folks on Wall Street, Main Street, and Capitol Hill worry about the likelihood of a recession. Ben Bernanke's using history to cut through the noise. Here's Andrew in the former Fed chair's living room. Thank you for being here. Well, thank you for, I shouldn't say thank you for being here. I should say thank you for having us here in your home. Welcome. Um, you have this new book. And what I wanted to understand from you was why now for you in terms of writing this book? And what is important today, do you think, most about looking back at that period to reflect on where we are? Well, it's always been part of my approach to, to use history to help inform current policy. So when I was chair during the financial crisis, I looked back at my work on the Great Depression. And I found and I knew that uh, the Great Depression 
have been caused basically by two things. One was very tight monetary policy, which led to falling prices, and also to the collapse of the financial system. And I said, you know, I'll make many mistakes, but those are two mistakes I don't want to make. And so we worked to try to um, prevent the collapse of the financial system through a wide variety of tools, some which were controversial, some which went under the radar. And then on monetary policy, we were, you know, we introduced quantitative easing and so on in order to try to provide support for the economy to recover. And now every episode, every period has its own challenges. And so now we have a pandemic. We're coming out, I hope, of the pandemic. It's created a whole new set of challenges. New inflation is a problem. And uh, I don't know the answers to all these questions, um, but I do know that it's useful to look back at what former chairs, former Federal Reserve officials, both here and I often look at other countries as well, how they responded to similar situations. I think it's a really useful way to get a mature view of, of how to respond to, to these kinds of problems. Okay, so let's go through a, a, a bit of it. And I, I very much enjoyed the book. And there were, there's fascinating elements of it in that you really take the reader through the Fed policymaking from the decade leading up until the great inflation of the 70s to today. Um, and so the question, though, I would ask you is the biggest lesson takeaway, especially when you start to think about the 1970s and the inflation we saw there and how you might think about it if you were in the seat now. Well, there are some big differences between the 70s and, and today. And uh, one, of course, being that the inflation in the 70s lasted for more than a decade and was much higher than we have now. So it was, a, it was a worse episode. But I think the most important things, first of all, that the Federal Reserve has to take the lead. Um, Arthur Burns, who was chair of the Fed in the 70s, felt that, that other parts of the government you know, should take the lead on inflation. Secondly, that you have to worry a lot about credibility and inflation expectations. The Fed's credibility was completely shattered in the 70s. Nobody believed that the Fed was going to take action against inflation. And so when Paul Volcker did, I mean, he had a lot of credibility, but it wasn't enough. And that was part of the reason why the recession, which followed uh, his tightening, was so much greater. And I think the, the third lesson from the 70s is that um, uh, political interference with Fed policy can be very dangerous. Uh, in the 70s, um, Arthur Burns, again, uh, acted more or less as a member of the Nixon administration. And Nixon wanted to be reelected in 1972. And so Arthur Burns said, well, we won't tighten monetary policy then. And that led to greater inflation. We have, I think today, both a more independent central bank. Uh, and also, I, I'm actually uh, pleasantly surprised if you look at uh, Congress and the president and so on, you're not seeing a lot of people saying the Fed should not be doing anything about this inflation. There's a lot of support for the fact that the Fed is tightening now, even though obviously we see the effects in markets, you know, we'll see the effects in house prices, et cetera. So those are some ways in which the uh, current situation, I think, is, is, is better uh, because we learned a lot from the 70s. And does that mean that we've acknowledged that actually, when you said the Fed should lead this, is it because there is no other tool? Well, in theory, uh, the, the fiscal authorities could play a role. That is, um, this is what modern monetary theory says, right. you know, that, that by uh, raising taxes and cutting spending and reducing aggregate demand and so on, uh, the fiscal authorities could play the same kind of role as the Fed, which is basically to reduce demand and get inflation down. Unfortunately, the Fed is just a lot more nimble and a lot better informed about markets and so on. 
and it can respond quickly and it can provide guidance about its long-run policy goals, et cetera, you know, for, there, there are many advantages to fiscal policy, but nimbleness is not one of them. It takes a long time to come to agreement. Um, only under very extreme circumstances does the Congress really react in a, in a powerful way. So from a political economy point of view, I think the Fed really is the only game in town, and they're recognizing that and not trying to look to others to solve the problem, I think, is really important. But you've also talked, and you talk about it in the book, that the Fed is a blunt instrument. Is it too blunt an instrument? Well, it depends on what your objective is. So, for example, um, one of our main concerns is uh, racial inequality. Um, unemployment rates for African Americans are higher than for white Americans. Wealth uh, for African Americans is lower than for white Americans. Now, what the Fed can do is try to make the overall economic environment better, uh, strengthen the economy, you know, give more job opportunities for everyone, for example. But it, its instrument is blunt in that it can't raise interest rates for one group and lower interest rates for another group. And so those kinds of issues, as important as they are, really belong to, primarily at least, to, uh, to the fiscal authorities to provide educational opportunities, to use taxes and transfers, um, access to health care, et cetera. Those, those are the kinds of tools that can um, more specifically address those kinds of problems. During the we saw it in the pandemic. The Fed could try to help the broad economy recover. It could try to stabilize financial markets. But it was up to the federal government to make sure that people uh, at the lower uh, end of the income distribution didn't suffer as much as they otherwise would by, by, by targeting their uh, unemployment insurance and transfers towards the bottom half of the income distribution. You know, one of the key motivations, and, and you write this in the book, is to try to draw a contrast, I think, between the toolkit that Powell used mm -hmm. in 2020 from his predecessors, including yourself. And in large part, that's from a lot of the innovations, though, that you brought for forth and deployed in the 08 crisis. How do you compare the two? Well, uh, it's true that Powell took the things we did in 08. Um, he expanded on them. He added a few things. Uh, the main thing he added was that Congress actually provided funds to allow the Fed to land not just to financial institutions, which is its traditional role, but also to non-financial companies, corporations, municipals, nonprofits, and ultimately uh, smaller businesses. Um, so uh, I would say that, that Powell, who was on my board, and I know him well, um, and he was part of the QE decisions and so on that we made back in 2012, uh, that he, uh, he bought into uh, an activist Fed and again, he took many of the tools that we, we used in 2008. They were already on the shelf, and so they could be deployed very quickly. But he did new things, too. For example, in March of 2020, when there was a severe financial crisis, he had the Fed buy, be a backstop buyer for treasuries and mortgage-backed securities and bring some calm to that market, uh, and was very successful. Do you think the Fed is misunderstood? Well, uh, yes. I mean, I, by many people. Um, at one what you, level, what do, you, what do you think it's most misunderstood? What do you think the biggest misunderstanding is? Well, uh, many people just don't understand exactly what the Fed does. Um, as my Princeton colleague once said, many people think the Federal Reserve is a national forest. Uh, other people, um, you know, in, the, in our current environment, uh, there's a lot of distrust of government in general, of elite technocratic institutions, which the Fed is one. 
Um, although I must say that there are conspiracy theories about the Fed that go back many, many years. Um, so it's a little bit of a mysterious institution from some people's perspective. Uh, but in fact, um, I think what's important to show is that not only is the, the Fed is not bipartisan, it's nonpartisan. It doesn't take politics into account. It really doesn't. Um, and so that's why the Congress trusted the Fed to do the lending during uh, the recovery from the pandemic, for example. Um, so the, the Fed is trying to act in the interest of the, of the broader economy, of the whole American people. Um, I think we've done a better job. I mean, when, what, part of the problem is, uh, was, was our own fault in that we talked to the markets all the time, but we didn't talk to the average American all the time. And uh, I think uh, Jay Powell has made progress in that direction. He makes a particular effort when he gives a press conference, for example, to lead off his, his uh, summary by talking to all Americans and explaining why the Fed did what it did and how it's going to be helpful uh, to everyone. So I, I think there's actually a trend globally for central banks to recognize it as powerful institutions uh, whose, whose leaders are unelected. It's really important for the democratic process for us no longer us, but for, for central bank leaders to um, explain themselves. What, what are they doing? Why are they doing it? And how is it going to help? You made it a priority to make the Fed more transparent. Do you think at all that it has become too transparent? That the transparency has actually made the job of what the Federal Reserve is trying to do more challenging? Uh, there are people who argue that, and I think on some dimensions that might be true. Uh, there's uh, one argument that's made is that there are too many people talking about, you know, what the Fed's going to do. You know, you count there are 19 people on the Federal Open Market Committee and each one of them has to give a speech at least once a month and, you know, the markets are responding to that. Um, but I think there's some advantages to having that many voices. First of all, people see that there's a lot of points of view, a lot of different uh, ideas that are being fed into the policy process. Secondly, the Presidents of the reserve banks, for example, have a lot of other functions besides simply, you know, making monetary policy. They, they, they um, uh, lead a local economy as well. They, they convene uh, some of the business leaders and the community leaders uh, to talk about what's happening in, in, right. in their own district. So um, then you have things like the, uh, the dot plot, which is very controversial, which tries to give the current um, estimates of FOMC members about where the federal funds right. rate's gonna go. Many people don't like that. I think if you understand it and know how to use it, I think it's actually quite useful summary of how the committee sees the, sees the outlook. Do you think with this transparency and the forward guidance that effectively comes with it, that it locks the Fed in, for example, to in this, in this most recent case, this 50 basis point rise? Well, you know, there's nothing, there's no, strategy that doesn't have occasional downsides. I think the clearest case in the most recent period is that the Fed said they weren't going to begin to raise rates until certain criteria were met, first of all. Secondly, until they had, um, uh, QE had gotten to a certain point and they were going to taper first, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the forward guidance, I think overall on the margin, uh, slowed the response of the Fed to the, um, inflation problem last year to, to, to some extent. So does that uh, mean it was a mistake? Well, they were, they had different, so th this is a complicated question. The question is why did they delay that? I think that 
why did they delay their response? I think in retrospect, yes, it was a mistake, and I think they agree it was a mistake. Uh, there were a number of reasons for it. One of the reasons was that they wanted not to shock the market. They wanted to avoid, uh, Jay Powell was on my board during the taper tantrum in 2013, which was a very unpleasant experience. He wanted to avoid that kind of thing by giving people as much warning as possible. And so that gradualism uh, was one of several reasons um, why the Fed didn't respond more quickly to the uh, inflationary pressure in the middle of 2021. 20, uh, there were other reasons as well. What do you think? Well, one of them was that um, in, in early 2021, after the American Rescue Plan was passed, and this was something like $2.8 trillion in new federal spending between the American Rescue Plan and the December program, um, you know, the Fed could have responded at that point, but they looked around and said, well, look, there's still a lot of slack because the unemployment rate was still close to 6%. The number of people working was still well below where it was before the pandemic. And so they, they said that, um, well, there's still a lot of slack in the economy. We should, we should let this fiscal program do its job and bring the economy back to full employment. I, what we've learned since then is that because of the pandemic, uh, with a lot of people staying home, uh, that the unemployment rate, for example, the number of jobs may not be a really good indicator of whether the labor market is hot or not. And so they're looking now at things like the number of job vacancies, which show that employers are having a terrible time finding enough workers and that the labor market is, is distorted. Um, the other issue that they were looking at was uh, the supply chain issue. You know, the pandemic has snarled supply chains around the world that has helped drive up prices. The Fed believed in the middle of 2021 that these factors would likely solve themselves over time. That, in other words, that the supply shocks were, quote, transitory, uh, and so that they didn't need to respond to the early stages of inflation because it was going to go away by itself. That proved wrong. Um, so there were, there were a couple of, of issues, I think, that are related primarily to the pandemic itself and, and the way that it scrambled the usual indicators that made it harder for the Fed to read the economy. How did you read the economy at that time? Well, let me first point out that I'm here by myself. I don't have 300 uh, econ PhDs to answer every question. Um, uh, I don't think I was radically different from the Fed. I, 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 I wasn't particularly on board with the view that the number of jobs was the right indicator of um, how tight the labor market was because I knew, first of all, that uh, immigration was low. I knew a lot of people were staying home, not because they couldn't find a job, but because with, with pandemic and Delta variant and so on raging, they weren't looking for a job. Uh, but I, uh, I did believe that um, uh, some of the inflation was coming from uh, factors created by the pandemic, including uh, the supply chain problems, the reduction in labor supply, uh, the fact that people were shifting their demand away from services like restaurants towards durable goods like cars, and that was putting up the prices tremendously in those durable goods. So we've seen big increases in car prices, for example. So I thought, uh, I don't know, I didn't have a specific time frame in mind, but I thought that over this year that those things would begin to reverse. I still think they will reverse eventually, but clearly they've been um, uh, more persistent more problematic than we, uh, than we, I, the FOMC, had thought. What do you think about Powell taking the 75 basis point raise potential off the table? I mean, this goes to the whole forward guidance issue. Do you think that that's helpful? Well, I'm not entirely sure that's 
what he meant to do. He, uh, what he said was that it was not currently being considered. I mean, you know, and uh, I think what the Fed would like to do, again, one of their goals is not to shock markets more than necessary. And so the last time the Fed raised uh, the funds rate 75 basis points was in 1994, and that episode is re re recalled to us today by the term the bond massacre. Um, so what he'd like to do, what the FOMC would like to do, is raise rates at 25 and 50 basis point increments right. in order to get to a level uh, that uh, is consistent with bringing inflation down. And it's important to understand that it doesn't matter that much for inflation or for the Fed's goals exactly what the pattern of increases is. In fact, even though the Fed's only raised rates twice so far, it's already tightened financial conditions considerably as people anticipate further rate increases. So I think, uh, I, I don't know what he had in mind, but I think it's entirely possible that he was not, you know, trying to give forward guidance, but rather just saying that this is not something we're thinking about right now, but we want to have a methodical um, uh, approach to getting rates up, presumably above the neutral level, to bring inflation back down. That's the key thing. Where, you know, where, will, where will rates be in the middle of the next year? And uh, what, how will these other factors affecting inflation, how will they evolve? So you didn't read it, you didn't read it as uh, this is off the table? Uh, no. No, and if, if you look at some of the commentary since then, uh, you hear FOMC members saying, we don't think it's necessary, but should it be necessary, of course, we'll do whatever it takes. Um, so uh, again, uh, while I'm sure markets would respond strongly to a 75 basis point increase, which is one of the reasons why they would prefer not to do that if they can avoid it, uh, ultimately what matters is where the rate ends up after the end of the hiking process. How much, by the way, do the members of the FOMC talk to you when you were running it about what they may say publicly? Because you're right, there are now so many different voices that you hear all the time. And, and I think there's a lot of people who are watching thinking, is this coordinated? Is this not coordinated? What is this? So people almost always overestimate the amount of coordination that takes place in the FOMC. When I was chair, I would occasionally get a speech from the Federal Reserve Bank president of Minnesota or Dallas or wherever, uh, I get a speech a day in advance, let's say. Uh, but in many cases, I would never see the speech at all until I read about it uh, you know, on the news wires. So um, the coordination is, is, uh, is very weak. There's not people, and I think that's important. On the one hand, you don't want to be confusing. You don't want to send mixed messages as if you can help it. You encourage the members of the FOMC to try to talk about the consensus that the committee has, but there's no way that you can or should prevent people from giving their own views because, again, why do we have a committee? Well, because you need different points of view and, and different inputs. And uh, I realize it makes it much harder to follow the Fed, uh, but um, I think having you know, basically only one voice, uh, the, the chair has the strongest voice, and particularly now that we have press conferences. But even so, I think it's useful to get the other points but of view. But people aren't trying to telegraph messages to the market. No, no, the only person, the only person who telegraphs is the chair. Squawk Pod will be back in a moment with more from Andrew's exclusive interview with former Fed Chair Ben Bernanke. What is your, the Ben Bernanke house view 
of whether we may have a recession next year. The thing people should watch most closely is inflation expectations. Begin to move up in a significant way that people have lost confidence in the credibility of the Fed, the Fed will have to react much more strongly and the effects on the economy will be much more uh, What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. You're listening to Squawk Pod, and we're talking inflation and America's economic future with the former Fed chair, Ben Bernanke. What is your, the Ben Bernanke house view of whether we may have a recession next year? Well, let me preface that by first saying that economists are notoriously bad at predicting recessions. Um, I think it depends. First of all, let me just say that the more the Fed has to tighten in order to get inflation down, the bigger the chance of a recession and the more severe it will be. How much the Fed has to tighten depends in turn on what happens to these factors they can't control, like the supply chains and the commodity prices. So that prediction requires you to make a prediction not only about the Fed's behavior, but about a lot of other things, the Ukraine war, et cetera. So it's a very hard thing, very uncertain thing to say. I guess that I still tend to believe that some of these forces uh, pushing up inflation, like the supply chains, like the preference for durable goods over services, um, and some of the commodity price increases, gas prices, and so on, uh, that they will at least stabilize and begin to moderate uh, sometime during this year, which would mean that inflation will come down to some extent, let's say by itself, but without the Fed's direct intervention. If that happens, the Fed would have to raise rates perhaps uh, moderately above neutral, say in the threes somewhere. When they do that, um, they'll slow demand. But as Jay Powell has pointed out, the economy is pretty strong. We're not going into recession as often as the case with a troubled economy. In fact, the underlying economy, as we recover from the pandemic, is quite strong. We have a very strong labor market, for example. We have a strong financial system. We have strong balance sheets. Uh, so if if the uh, inflation slows, as I expect it ultimately will, although I've been disappointed about how slow that process is, then the Fed should not have to raise rates you know, too far. And what we would get then would be a slowing, a slowing of the economy, maybe even a stall, but not a severe recession. The severe recession would only come if these other factors simply do not cooperate. And in particular, the thing, the thing people should watch most closely is inflation expectations. 
If inflation expectations, as measured by break-evens in the inflation-protected securities market, as measured by surveys and so on, begin to move up in a significant way, that people have lost confidence in the credibility of the Fed, the Fed will have to react much more strongly and the effects on the economy will be much more uh, deleterious. And how concerned are you about that? For the moment, knock on wood, uh, this is a big difference between uh, today and the 1970s. In the 1970s, inflation expectations were all over the place and nobody had any confidence in the Fed uh, that it would bring inflation back down. Today, um, most indicators suggest that people are still pretty confident that the Fed or maybe some combination of the Fed and the end of the pandemic will lead to more normal inflation in the future. And you can see that in, in, uh, in financial markets, you can see it in, in forecasts by professional forecasters, and you can see it for the most part, not in all cases, in surveys of people asking them where they think inflation will be in three or five years. What do you think about the Fed raising the inflation target? Do you think they should? No, I don't think they should, and I don't think they will. Um, the reason they shouldn't, uh, there's, a, there's a number of reasons, but I think the most important one is that inflation targets should not be used as a short-run tool. You know, if you raise the inflation target to 3%, you know, for some short-term purpose, then why not 4%, you know, or why not three and a half, or why not create a band, or whatever. One of the benefits of the inflation target is that, is that there's nothing special about 2%. Let me, let me be clear about that. Um, but the Fed has kept inflation roughly around 2% on average, except for the last year, uh, ever since uh, the late 80s, early 90s. So that's 30 years. So that builds up a lot of credibility that the Fed will do what it takes to get back to that level of inflation. Now, 3% inflation uh, would not be a disaster either in terms of the actual inflation, but it would um, uh, be very hard for the bond markets to absorb. They wouldn't know if this was a temporary or permanent change. And people would, become, would come to think of this as a, you know, just another tool the Fed can change at an FOMC meeting and might change more frequently in the future. I think that's not a good, a good situation. What do you think the chances are that we fall into a period of stagflation? Well, a period of stagflation, i.e. a year, is certainly very possible. I mean, because even under the benign scenario, we should have a slowing economy and inflation still too high but coming down. So there should be a period, could well be a period, um, in the next year or two where growth is uh, low, below potential, uh, unemployment is leased up a little bit, and uh, inflation is still too high. And so you could call that stagflation. On the other hand, the term stagflation was invented in the 1970s, which was a period both of very high and persistent inflation for, for 15 years and where growth was largely slowing, although we know now, we figured out even then, that a lot of it was due to things like slower productivity growth, which is not really under the control of the Fed. So stagflation is a, is a risk, um, but we're, we're, you know, at the moment it looks like any stagflation that help, happens in the United States would be uh, a relatively temporary phenomenon. How concerned are you about the inflationary effects on food prices? Well, uh, one problem with the big increases in commodity prices, including oil, wheat, corn, oils, and so on, 
uh, is that people are very attentive to gas prices and food prices, obviously, because they use these, they shop every week. Uh, they see these prices. So th there's two reasons why this is particularly worrisome. One is that, it, you know, higher food prices create a lot of hardship. It, you know, we still have hunger in America. We still have people who can't afford uh, all the food they need. So that is obviously uh, uh, very costly. The other thing from a more Fed-oriented point of view is that, again, as I mentioned before, uh, you want people to have uh, confidence that inflation is going to come back down. You want their inflation expectations to stay well-controlled. And, and that will actually help the process because they won't be asking for outsized wage increases, for example. Uh, but if they see gas prices and, and hamburger prices and, and the bread prices going up every month, you know, by, by a rate of 10% a year or something like that, uh, that has a ri the risk is there that that's going to shift their thinking and make them, you know, more willing to engage in a wage price spiral where, where workers demand higher wages and higher wages cause higher prices and, and so on. How destabilizing, though, to society do you think these inflationary pressures are? I mean, when I think about inflation for food, I then, you know, if you take that to the extreme, you can think about, you know, the Arab Spring. I mean, I, I, food prices, gas prices, housing prices, all of that. How, how nervous should, should people be about what, what that could do to our society? Well, I mean, this creates a lot of anxiety. It's the number one problem. It was the number one problem in surveys back in the 1970s. Now, part of this, you know, I, I, I think only an economist would worry about the reasons for this, but, but part of this is the fact that there really are, in some sense, shortages of critical goods. That is, you know, the war in Ukraine, for example, or the fact that China's shut down really means that there's less stuff available to go around, and the inflation process is just a way in which the economy tells you you can't have as much stuff. People don't care about that. They worry about the fact that their family budget is not going as far. So I think if it lasts a long time and it gets much worse, uh, that will be a, another uh, big concern. And I think in the end, people put the economy very high in their list of concerns when they vote and so on. And I guess I would say one other thing, which is uh, the difference between inflation and unemployment is that inflation affects just about everybody. Unemployment affects some people a lot, but most people don't respond too much to unemployment because they're not personally unemployed. So inflation is, has a social-wide kind of impact, and, and I think uh, nobody's more convinced than Jay Powell that the Fed needs to get inflation back under control. Housing prices continue to skyrocket. Is there anything comparable about what's happening now with housing prices to what was happening with housing prices in 2008? Well, it, there has, house prices have risen a lot, like 30% in the last two years. That's something that needs to be watched. I would say there are a couple of important differences. One is that the mortgages that are being lent to, for people to buy these houses are generally much higher quality than the subprime mortgages of 15 years ago. So I'm not that concerned about some kind of financial crisis arising from these mortgages. The other thing that's different is that uh, the high house prices I think are in very large extent, to a very large extent, the product of the pandemic. For example, there are many re ways in that which that's true, but for example, uh, many people have been working from home and they wanted to have more space. And so they 
moved up to a bigger house or maybe a house further out from the city. So there's been an increased demand uh, for housing. At the same time, during the pandemic, um, supply chain issues and other issues have really reduced the supply. So the inventory of available houses, unlike in 2007 when there were plenty of houses to buy, uh, is very, very small. And so whenever a house goes for sale, there's going to be a bidding war. So uh, this is not a good thing because it means that first-time home buyers uh, are faced with um, uh, high prices. Uh, I don't think it's a major risk to financial stability, but I do think it suggests that um, we should uh, try harder as a society to make sure there's enough housing for first-time home buyers and, and, and everyone who wants to uh, you know, have a place to, place to live, which is everybody basically. With your economist hat on, and we think about oil prices going up, I'm actually curious how you think about the ESG movement, because it's, it's a new metric, it's a new way that people think about things, um, and a new way that businesses have approached um, either investment or not investing, for example, in drilling or, or things like that. Um, and as an economist, sort of how do, how do you think about that, and do you think that that I mean, there's some people that blame uh, today uh, some of the, the sort of uh, non-commercial, non-capitalistic uh, views that, have, that some companies have approached things with in, as, as uh, and they, they fault them uh, even for sort of where we are today. Do you, do you buy into that? Well, I, I think um, these, these are important issues. Uh, particularly climate change, environmental issues are, are really important for the world, and we need to be doing more about that. It's a long-time tradition that, uh, you know, there's, there's always been philanthropies where that invest only in certain kinds of, you know, capital that doesn't have, you know, association with some dictator or something like that. So I, I don't think it's particularly harmful, but I'm not so sure that it is super effective either. I think the best way to address, say, climate change issues would be through, frankly, collective action. And that basically means the government has to play some role, uh, subsidizing uh, new technologies, uh, which uh, it's done pretty well, actually. And the vaccine is an example of a government you know, subsidy of a, of a technology that worked out really quite well. Um, but also um, carbon taxes, uh, retrofitting, other things that could be done you know, through a collective effort. And I think it, the, the reason we're not making more progress on climate change is basically that our politics is very polarized and there's not broad support for making sacrifices to protect the environment, to protect um, uh, the climate. So, uh, I'm, you know, the fact that people are willing to do ESG investments does suggest that they're interested in, in helping on that side, but I think uh, real, real progress is going to take not just private actions, all we should all do what we can to reduce our carbon footprint and so on, but real progress is going to take a collective effort that would involve, you know, other tools. Do you think there's real economic theory behind ESG? Um, I think that, you know, th th there's always demand for divesting, you know, unpopular stocks, let's say, in university endowments and so on. And it's fine to show your concern about, um, about the way some country is behaving or the way some company is behaving and so on. But when you divest, you're basically just selling the stock to somebody else who doesn't have quite the same concerns. 
uh, and the effects on the issuer of the stock tend to be fairly modest. So I'm not saying it has no effect at all, but it's, it's a more limited uh, approach than either community level or personal level efforts to reduce, say, carbon, or even better, a, a social-wide effort to take strong actions to meet uh, carbon goals. You write and talk, you've talked about the digital dollar. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've been watching all of the back and forth over stable coins even this past mm -hmm. week or mm -hmm. the price of Bitcoin. Right. What do you think of the future of a digital dollar? What do you think of cryptocurrency at this point? So I, I think there's, putting aside the technology, uh, the, uh, uh, which the blockchain, which I think has many useful uh, applications, there's basically three kinds of cryptocurrencies. There's the Bitcoin type, which, whose price changes every day on the, on the market. There's a stable coin, which is tied to current fiat currencies one for one, and supposedly there are assets backing the value of those cryptocurrencies. And then third, there's central bank-issued uh, digital currencies, which the United States is looking at. So you can talk about each of these at some length, but let me just talk about the Bitcoin type thing. So, so Bitcoin and uh, other currencies, uh, cryptocurrencies whose, whose value uh, changes minute to minute, uh, they've been successful as a speculative asset, uh, and people, you're seeing the downside of that right now, but they were intended to be a substitute for fiat money. And I think in that respect, they have not succeeded because if it, if Bitcoin were a substitute for fiat money, you could use Bitcoin to go buy your groceries. Nobody buys groceries with Bitcoin because it's too expensive and too inconvenient to do that. Moreover, the price of groceries, the price of celery, varies radically day to day in terms of Bitcoin. And so there's no stability either in the value of Bitcoin. And the main use of Bitcoin is, is mostly for underground economy activities and things that often things that are illegal or illicit. So... Um, I don't think that uh, Bitcoin is going to take over as an alternative form of money. Um, it'll be around as long as people are believers and they want to speculate in this. But um, again, I don't think it's going to and you be... And don't, you don't buy into the idea of it as being a store of value or some kind of version of digital gold? Well, as I said, it's a speculative asset, uh, but it's, it's one that... Uh, whose underlying use value, gold has underlying use value, you can use it to fill cavities. Uh, the underlying use value of, of Bitcoin is to do ransomware or something like that. So one of the other risks that Bitcoin has is that it could at some point be subject to a lot more regulation. And the anonymity is also at risk, I think, at some point. So, you know, investors in Bitcoin should be, should be aware of that. Um, but you know, again, like I said, it has succeeded as a speculative asset and, and to the extent that well-recognized institutions, big banks and so on, are offering Bitcoin yeah, well, one asset. But. Well, what do you make of that? I mean, you have Fidelity mm -hmm. planning to allow people in their 401k plans to buy Bitcoin. Well, I think Bitcoin is a very volatile asset. Uh, its price has gone up a lot since it started, that's for sure. Um, I, think, I think it's just a speculation. And I, you know, I don't think it's particularly healthy. I do, though, I want to insist that I do think that there's a lot of interesting stuff that can be done with, uh, with uh, digital currencies, with blockchain, and so on. But I think that uh, these cryptocurrencies that have no underlying you know, assets that's to support them 
they're going to vary for reasons that we, no, nobody understands. Nobody can really explain why cryptocurrencies are doing what they're doing on any given day. And it's really a lot of it has to do with just people's psychological attitudes. I think. What, what do you make of stable coins and whether, in fact, these stable coins are actually stable? Well, stable coins are very different from Bitcoin and so on in that they're tied to existing fiat currencies. Or like they're the supposed dollar. to be. Or they're supposed to be, right. And the way they do that is that each unit of the, of the stable coin is worth, say, $1. And supposedly there's, there's $1 of assets that are backing that. Now, uh, these things are kind of risky in the following way. They could, they could, first of all, they could be uh, a big innovation. They could possibly make it much easier to do transactions uh, with dollars, but, but using the digital currency approach. So that, that's, let's not rule them out as a positive transaction, as a positive innovation that, that could happen. But a, a, a stablecoin is kind of like a bank where the money that you hold, the, the, the stablecoins that you hold are like the deposits you have in a bank. And the stablecoin company takes those deposits and invests them in assets of different kinds, just as a bank invests in loans and securities. Okay? And like an old-fashioned bank without deposit insurance, you can have a run where people uh, lose confidence in the stablecoin and you know, try to sell it back uh, or get rid of it uh, and transfer their wealth to um, maybe the Fed or to some other uh, safer location. So I think one thing that has to be worked out with stablecoins is are they really stable? Uh, is there a risk that there might be runs or big fluctuations in value? Um, and how will they work with other types of, of, um, of, uh, of currency or, or, or money? Who should regulate that? Well, I think the, in practice, uh, the SEC will probably uh, have a lot to do with it, and they're already doing a lot uh, to deal with that. Um, but, you know, anything that uh, relates to money and transactions, the Fed also should have some role. There's a lot of different aspects to it. I mean, there's consumer protection, there's financial stability, and maybe different agencies would have different, uh, different parts of that job. I wanted to ask you about, you, you've written a lot about inequality, you've talked about inequality over the years, and one of the raging debates in this country has been about a wealth tax, um, about effectively whether billionaires should be taxed. I don't know if you saw Trevor Noah had a very uh, actually insightful video about how Elon Musk uh, effectively had been able to use the collateral of his Tesla shares that have never been taxed uh, to back a loan to effectively go and buy Twitter. Um, so that they're making the argument that those assets, while not realized, actually do have a value. How do you think about a wealth tax and how do you think about taxing wealth at that level? Well, I think we do have an inequality problem and we, and we should try to make the wealth and income distribution more equal. The question is, what's the practical way to do that? Uh, a straight wealth tax has some practical problems, namely, for example, um, if, uh, it's easy if you own stock because you know how you can value stock. But suppose that you own um, a small business or suppose that you own um, a, maybe you authored a textbook and the textbook is making royalties every year. It's really hard, you know, on your annual 1040 to figure out what your wealth is and to tax that. I think they're probably, I'm not, don't misunderstand me, I'm not against taxing billionaires, but I think a better way to do it would be to raise capital gains taxes. You could, you could tax realized capital gains, 
I think an important thing would, that would be helpful would be to eliminate the, the provision that when you pass appreciated securities onto your heirs, the appreciation is not taxed at any time. So there, there are ways to increase the tax burden on both the income and the wealth of rich people, uh, which I, I think are much more, just more practical than, than a straight wealth tax. And I, I know defenders of the wealth tax would disagree, and there's a great debate about that, but I don't disagree with the, the objective, but I think that you just need to find a method that will you know, not be impossible to enforce. Right. President Biden, in terms of talking about inflation, has even talked about higher taxes on the wealthy as a, as a, as a measure of, of, of something that he could do. What do, you, what do you think politically anybody in, in his position or anybody in Washington, an elected official, can do about inflation at this point? Well, it's, it's, it's fairly limited. I mean, I think the, it's, it's appropriate that the Fed is taking the lead. And I think the most important thing that the president can do is support the Fed share and let the Fed share do what needs to be done, even if it's a little bit painful. There's things in this particular case that there's things that probably could help on the margin. I mean, I think work that the White House has done to improve supply chains, for example, um, work um, to improve uh, public health so we don't have another pandemic and the effects of that. Um, you know, things that, that make uh, uh, critical uh, goods like uh, health and education cheaper, more efficient. It's not going to do much for inflation, but it would be good for people who are, you know, feeling like their money is not going far enough. Um, would, you, would you eliminate student debt? Uh, unconditionally, no. No, I don't because? think. Because? I think, first of all, it's, uh, it would be very unfair to eliminate, first of all, many of the people who have uh, large amounts of student debt are professionals who are going to go on and make lots of money in their lifetime. Um, so why, you know, why would we be favoring them over somebody who didn't go to college, for example? So I think at a minimum, if you do that, you've got to limit the amount that you, you, you do. And um, uh, means test it in some way so that you're not basically make, give, uh, doing a giveaway. I think student debt, I mean, the thing about student debt is, is that fundamentally it's a really good thing in that it allows, it used to be that if you didn't have any money, you couldn't go to college, period, no matter how smart you were. Nowadays, if you, if you are capable and want to go to college, you probably are going to be able to find a way to pay for it. One way to do that is debt. There are other ways as well. So I think we don't want to eliminate, we don't want to somehow make people think that the student debt is gone forever, is never going to be part of the environment. I think that it needs to be done. What I think needs to be done, though, is that when you make student loans, you just don't give it to anybody. You should, there should be more, uh, like a bank underwrites a loan, you know, right. there should be more underwriting where people understand whether the investment they're making and maybe understand that $50,000 a year for uh, I don't know, cosmetics training or something is probably not going to pay off economically over time. Uh, so I think people should be, uh, should be advised on the, the value of, you know, the, of the loan and of the investment that they're making. I think that would help. And we wouldn't have these situations where people drop out of college, don't have a career, and they're burdened with these huge loans. So yes, some, some relief would, would be okay. Uh, but I think it has to be done in a way that people perceive as fair. And by the way, is your sense that the loan programs that we have in place today have actually helped push up and make the price of education inflationary, if you will? Yeah, yeah to some extent, you know, because uh, you are 
basically giving people more money to spend on education, that's going to raise the price of education. That's kind of inevitable. Uh, if you let more people, give more people access to college, then the prices are going to go up. But uh, there, there are probably ways to, to deal with that. Uh, again, I think it's really important. I, I came from a small town in South Carolina. My father was a town druggist. I got to go to Harvard and I did huge things for my, for my lifetime career. Um, it might not have happened uh, without, uh, without various kinds of help that I got. So I think it's important for um, uh, people, young people who have the goals and the ability to, to go to college or professional school, whatever, to be able to do it and not be blocked from doing it for purely financial reasons. But um, again, Forgiving all student debt, for example, would, would be a very uh, regressive move that would actually be inequality creating rather than reducing. One of the things you said that the president could do is support the Fed. Do you feel like the Fed is going to become, if it hasn't become already, politicized? We're, we're seeing that now in the context, for example, of the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. I'm, I don't think that it is politicized. Um, I think people have a, a lot of confidence in the Fed's nonpartisan nature. I think that's the reason why Congress decided to allow Fed, the Fed to be the lender in all these programs we saw in 2020, because everybody trusted the Fed would do a nonpartisan job and wouldn't be favoring one group over another group, and they would do it technically very well. Uh, so I think the Fed generally has a pretty good nonpartisan reputation, and that's a very valuable asset that they have. Um, I would point out that Jay Powell has particularly made an effort um, to, uh, on the one hand, uh, not to react to the tweets that he got from President Trump, but on the other hand, to reach out particularly to members of Congress. And he, I think the Fed currently has the best relationship with Congress that it's had for some time, because both I and Janet Yellen, when we went to testimony, would have a lot of hostile questions. Uh, Jay has, has re he still gets hostile questions, of course, but he is, he's made a lot of progress in, in uh, mending fences with Congress, and I think that's good. Now, uh, ultimately, we don't know where things are going to go in the United States, and, 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 and the political view that distrusts elite technocratic institutions like the Fed may, may affect you know, public views of the Fed as well, but um, particularly if the economy you know, goes off in a bad way. But, I think at the moment that um, the Fed is uh, pretty independent and uh, certainly nonpartisan. Right. But you do write important. about efforts that previous administrations have made mm -hmm. to politicize yeah. the Fed and the pressures that have been felt. Absolutely. And I, and I think the, uh, the changes really began uh, to some extent with uh, the first Bush, but mostly with Clinton. And since Clinton, until Trump, presidents have been pretty, pretty good about letting the Fed do what it thought was necessary. And in my experience, working both with George W. Bush and Barack Obama, I found they were very supportive of what we were doing and, and uh, understood the idea that while we were, of course, uh, accountable to the president and the Congress, that in the short run, it was better to let the Fed make its own choices about how exactly to achieve its objectives. And I think that's uh, globally, I think that that's shown to be a better way to. But doesn't to do it, it even feel political today? I mean, we just had a new uh, member of the FOMC board be voted on. It was along yeah. party lines completely. 
Yeah, no, that's, I, I, I'm sorry about that. I think uh, uh, the person in question, I think I know her well, uh, I think it will be an outstanding board member. And I, I think but that are, you is, are you surprised by what, I mean, you live here, so you yeah. maybe you're not surprised by any of it. Um, well, she had some, uh, and Sarah Raskin was turned down entirely. I think, I think um, the way Jay Powell handles this, which I think is probably a good strategy most of the time, is to talk about the Fed staying in its lane. That the Fed is not a universal policymaker. It's not really there to make decisions about climate change or, right. uh, or racial equity, as important as those issues are. Um, and I think, fairly or not, that those two people were perceived as having broad goals and interests outside of the Fed's main mission. And that was the hook on which the opposition uh, came together. Uh, the other, uh, Philip Jefferson, passed easily. Uh, Leo Brainerd, who is um, uh, well known as a, a Democrat, who has contributed to Democratic politicians, passed easily. Um, so I think that the secret to, to getting a, you know, a strong vote is showing that you're really going to focus on the mission of the Federal Reserve and not try to take it in directions right. that uh, Congress doesn't do you think approve those, of. Do you think that, that this system at the Fed, in terms of term limits and the like, um, I don't know if they're term limits, but mm -hmm. sort of the, requ the required vote, continual voting, is a model, for example, people looking now at, at the Supreme Court? Uh, this is way, really outside of my lane. Uh, uh, Alan Blinder, again, my colleague at Princeton, has written a book which he argues that there should be more input to fiscal policy decisions and so on from a council of you know, experts that would give, wouldn't necessarily make the decisions, but would provide background. You know, so you know, he would maybe be the person who would make that argument in more detail. I think it is important that, in general, that uh, the agencies that carry out uh, Congress's wish, wishes, you know, from the Fed to the OCC to the SEC to the uh, EPA, that they are not politicized, that they are seen as trying to do an objective job that appropriately uh, carries out the wishes of the Congress. And, and if they get politicized, it, it, it's not really helpful because then they, they can't get their leaders approved and they can't get their budgets and, and, and things just become all the more difficult. Well, let me go back. What do you think about you know, using the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and, and releasing that? Does that? Do you think that that actually has an inflationary effect? Does that have a deflationary effect? You know, it has a small uh, disinflationary effect, I think, by putting a little extra supply of oil in the market. But people know that uh, at some point they have to buy oil to put it, you know, replace the oil they took out. Um, so that probably raises prices of oil. That, that fact probably raises prices of oil today because people anticipate that in the future the government's going to increase its demand for oil in order to replenish the SPR. So I would say that um, taking oil out of the SPR might have a small beneficial effect, but it's not going to be very big or very lasting. Right. And then two other quick ones. Um, we, we haven't really actually talked about Ukraine, Russia. I mean, we've talked about the impacts of it on, in terms of price. For, at, putting on your, your economist hat, what do you think the impacts are going to be longer term 
on Europe and longer term on the rest of the world? Well, that depends. The long term effects depend on, you know, how, how things get resolved. You know, I mean, it seems like um, Europe and Russia are, are getting more divided. And I think one of the things we're seeing from the pandemic and from the war is that um, supply chains are going to get shorter. People are going to start relying more on their friends and allies for key inputs. And that's going to be a little bit of a deglobalization that's going to change the way that production is organized. So I think that's one thing that's going to happen. Um, and, what, and what does that mean economically longer term? Well, on the one hand, it, uh, you know, if, you, if you're not doing the most efficient approach, it probably raises costs a little bit and makes things a little bit more expensive. But on the other hand, uh, it's, it's, it's good. I mean, a country uh, obviously is taking a chance if it, if it allows critical inputs, whether it's silicon chips or uh, critical parts for airplanes or whatever it might be, to be manufactured by uh, in a country that might be hostile in some future situation. So I think that taking the national security considerations into account, you know, makes, makes good sense. And I think that's one of the things that we're, we're seeing. And it's going to, again, it's going to pull back a little bit the, the globalization, but without reversing it completely, but just pull it back a little bit uh, so that people feel more confident that they can access the critical inputs when they need to. And do you feel similarly about China? Um, yes, I think that um, there will be... Uh, somewhat less dependence on China, and the president has said that explicitly, uh, but I hope there won't be any effort to sort of decouple, to completely separate. I think that's impossible. It would be very, very costly to do. So I think we need to figure out ways to work together and, and to make uh, our economic relationship work. But I, I do think that there will be efforts to make sure that really critical uh, materials and inputs uh, are not you know, produced in China, but they're produced in a, in a more neutral, in a more neutral place. Thank you. So Ben Bernanke throwing, throwing a little bit of shade at some of the, uh, at some of the efforts to divest. We've seen I mean, it's interesting. He was throwing shade at the, at the divestment itself, saying you're not going to be very effective. University right. endowments are always doing stuff like that. And it just means you're. But then he's saying he the to. government needs to do this more broadly, but on did, the other hand. Did he weigh in on the idea that some of the ESG proposals that are being pushed by governments in some areas, by investors much larger than just university endowments, what that has meant for the lack of CapEx spending in oil and gas production and why we are now He in didn't really touch on that, that in, in the way that I think some of the debate that we've had around this table. I think what he was focused on mostly was this idea that a lot of oil companies have said, we're going to divest of, you know, X, uh, you know, X drilling plant or this or that. And that that actually, I don't want to say it's fake, but, you know, all you're really doing is, you know, reshuffling the board, basically. Um, well, I mean, listen, to, to the point about ESG, you, you can be pro-ESG or not, whatever. If you sell all your stocks, you have no seat at the table. If you look at like a Calsters or a Calpers, they will say they would prefer to continue to own the equities. And right. I think Larry Fink has sort of yeah. come around it's, on this. Because once you sell it, you're not a stakeholder right. and you have no say in what the company does. You've effectively right. absolved yourself. That was actually always rather what, than what Fink was trying to yourself. do. So by the way, I ran a poll. Yeah. I just tweeted this out. Just now? At Sully CNBC. I said, 
per Andrew Ross Sorkin's excellent interview with Ben Bernanke. Very, thank you so much. Uh, Continue on. And discussion about politics. Say Fed. more. Do you believe the Fed is truly apolitical? We'll see how it comes out. So one of the things you got to read the book because he does get in, even though he's even though he says that the Fed is not political, he goes through a lot of periods in the 70s, they were. 80s under Greenspan, he, where there's all sorts of politics. He going said on. in the earlier yes, clip he does. that he does. Burns, Arthur Burns, yes. not Montgomery Burns, he owns a nuclear plant yep. in Springfield. Arthur Burns was basically just did Nixon's bidding. You know, there's, it's actually fascinating to sort of see the sort of full breadth of the Fed in terms of how he analyzes it all. Did, did he get into anything at all about the, the politicalization of the Fed in terms of whether that's part of the reason Jay, Jay Powell and company didn't raise rates sooner? Because he wasn't confirmed for He doesn't for say that yet. specifically. I think it would, you definitely feel throughout the book that there are moments when the Fed has been very politicized and the pressure he does talk about the pressures that people feel uh, but in fact he thinks that right now the fed is actually in even a more credible place than even it was when he mm. was under when he was there now i don't know if people agree with that but he thinks that the fed is now considering how polarized the country is and we by the way we got into that at one point we were talking about the supreme court and everything else being meaning the whole country is politicized that the fed is one of the last bastions of independence if you believe that's the case. I just wonder, like, 50 years ago, how much people actually knew who the Fed chair even was. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. They did when Volcker was there. I think he was the first one that got some notoriety. But that remember, we're in our bubble here, literally Brian's in a bubble. got the notoriety. Volcker got the attention. But I think, I wonder if like my grandfather would, now my grandfather dropped out of school in seventh grade, so I don't think he knew. But he, I don't think he would have been able to be like, Grandpa, who's the Fed chair? It's William McChesney Martin. I don't think that would have happened. Half the country doesn't know who the vice president is. He has is. a great line where he says at one point that he thinks that, that uh, the American public thinks that the Federal Reserve is a national park. We'll be right back. And that's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for starting off this week with us. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Thanks to Brian Sullivan for sitting in today. Follow Squawk Pod wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please let us know. On Apple Podcasts, you can rate Squawk Pod or write a review and let us know any feedback. Thank you for listening. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys.
This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 